0: Mr. Welch, ladies and gentlemen, it is for me a great honor to be able, once again, to address a society that literally has kept the flame of liberty burning in America during the past two decades. And Brother Smothers, I'm delighted to be able to share this platform with you. I, like you, was raised in the South. Yes, I have picked cotton. And I've also made chicken coops to earn money to go to college. And in those days, I knew what it was to get along in the morning with a bowl of oatmeal. And I purchased the bag with 20 cents, and it lasted two weeks. And for noon, grits without butter, gravy, or anything on it. I knew what it was to sole my own shoes, to wash my own clothes. And the thing, Brother Summers, that impressed me about what you were saying is what the Republicans, certainly the leaders, have overlooked. Because I was talking with the other Republican governors now reduced to 12 earlier this week. And they were talking about how to broaden the base. And they were talking about how to get the black vote. And they were not interested in talking about the issues that move the average American today. They even split wide open on that greatest issue that has faced America in decades, namely the Panama Canal issue. I think I found what Clay Summers found, and that is that regardless of color, what we have here in America is an opportunity for any man and any woman to rise to the heights without limit except by his own ability and his own industry. I don't know whether that trapdoor applies to me or not, but I've got to say something that's not on my text. And if need be, I'll sacrifice a text in order to say it. As Mr. Welch has said, and you probably have perceived, I'm that kind of a fella. Now what I want to tell you about is a speaker of the House of Representatives in New Hampshire way back in 1777, when the people of New Hampshire had just received word that Burgoyne and his redcoats were marching southward and perhaps might even invade New Hampshire, which up to that time had not been invaded and, as it turned out later, was the only colony that was never invaded. But the New Hampshire legislature was concerned and wanted to raise an army. It had very little with which to raise it. Fortunately, people were willing to fight for liberty at that time without thought of money. And the Speaker of the House, John Langdon, who later became governor, senator, and the first president of the United States Senate, rose in the legislature and said, I have $3,000 in silver, which I will give to the cause, and I have a silver plate worth another $3,000, and I have 70 hogsheads of Tobago rum, and all of that I will also give to the cause, knowing that if we lose, none of it will be of any value to me, and if we win, I may be able to get some of it back. That was the same spirit that motivated 56 men in Philadelphia, knowing that off the coast of Sandy Hook they had assembled the largest armada of vessels at that time, in the history of those colonies 59 men of war the latest and best that Great Britain could send 27 sloops 400 transports loaded all waiting to hear whether those renegades in Philadelphia would dare to declare their independence of the mother country and knowing all of that those 56 men as you know were willing to sign the Declaration of Independence and pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. All of them lost their fortunes. Some lost their lives due to the attrition of the war. None lost their sacred honor. And the reason I tell you this, friends, is because Bob might throw me out if I say this, but today... I had the privilege of attending a meeting in which a man got up and with tears in his eyes and with vision and perception, not given to many, recognizing the danger that faces this great country of ours, gave and pledged to the John Birch Society $150,000. And I would ask Clyde Lewis of Alaska to stand so that you can sing. And Bob? of the great example that Clyde has set for all of us. I certainly cannot accept an honorarium from this organization. Please keep it. the conclusion of our constitutional convention in Philadelphia, September 1787 Benjamin Franklin speculated on the picture of a son that appeared on the back of the chair occupied by the president of the convention, George Washington. Franklin said, "I wondered during the course of our long debates, whether the sun on the president's chair." was a rising or setting one. With the successful conclusion of our work here, I now know that it is a rising sun. Now, almost two centuries later, the times in which we find ourselves cause honest patriots to question whether at last the sun of fortune is setting toward the dark horizon of a lost destiny. Too many Americans believe that our premier place in history immediately following World War II ensures an endless continuity in the future of the United States. Not so. The seeds of decay of our priceless civilization have been sown and the putrid fruit of a perishing nation sprouts round about us. There is nothing in history's long record of mankind that should encourage us to believe that we Americans might blaze a path of glory across the ages until time shall be no more. Consider the causes of ancient Rome's decline, as related by Will Durant, Among the reasons for her economic decline were her precarious dependence on grains, her inability to export the equivalent of her imports, and the consequent drain of her precious metals to the East. Other factors in her deteriorating economy were the rising cost of armies, doles, public works, and expanding bureaucracy—the depreciation of the currency, the discouragement of ability, and the absorption of investment capital by confiscatory taxation. The spread of despotism destroyed the will to survive in Rome. The Roman lost his civic sense. Patriotism decayed. Public officials became indolent, subservient, and venal. How familiar sounds this litany of the elements of national decadence. Durant caught the denouement of the empire in one graphic sentence. In this awful drama of a great state breaking into pieces, the internal causes were the unseen protagonists. The invading barbarians merely entered where weakness had opened the door and where the failure of biological, moral, economic, and political statesmanship had left the stage to chaos, despondency, and decay. Consider how far our nation has traveled down this alpine highway of destruction. Our grains we ship to Russia, where they are stored in huge underground granaries against the day when we might retaliate to a first nuclear strike. For almost a half century, we have been busy rending the fabric of constitutional government. We have spinelessly relinquished state sovereignty to an all-powerful, liberty-corrosive central government. We have allowed public abortions, hedonistic indecency, and queer sexual behavior to be protected by a noble constitution that has been perverted, tortured, and distorted by a nasty minority who, in the pursuit of their own self-gratification, would destroy this great country of ours. We have tolerated taxes until individual liberty and free enterprise has been stifled and the doors of government have been opened to socialism. In a time when terrorism, torture, and man's beastly inhumanity toward man are virtues of government in two-thirds of the world, we weaken our national defenses. No longer do we have a two-ocean navy— The sad truth is that we have only half the number of naval vessels of 14 years ago, fewer, in fact, than we had at the time of Pearl Harbor. It has been the custom of Congress for years to have the farewell address of George Washington read aloud to its members on the date of his birth. In that great address, Washington urged his countrymen to keep themselves by suitable establishments on a respectable defensive posture. Few indeed heeded Washington's sage advice on national defense as a majority of the members smugly voted down the B-1 bomber project on his very birth date. Under the Carter administration, No longer do Americans follow the biblical admonition to proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Instead, we are asked by our cowardly diplomats to appease a vicious, drug-trafficking, Marxist-dominated regime to normalize relations with Red Cuba and Red China to strip our defense before the barbarian Soviets and to support the terrorist, Marxist, patriotic front fighting against the Rhodesians and the Swapo-Communist terrorists now murdering and abducting innocent blacks in southwest Africa. Friends, no president in the history of our nation ever before devised and pursued a foreign policy so detrimental to the best interest of America and so un-American to our great heritage as has the man, <laughs> as has the man who strode from the peanut fields of Georgia to the White House. Who is the architect of Carter's foreign policy? Zbigniew Brzezinski who was born in Poland and now serves as an assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, the most powerful and sensitive foreign policy position in the government. This is the man who, in 1970, wrote a book entitled Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. In it he said, Marxism represents a further vital and creative stage in the maturing of man's universal mission. Marxism, he also said, is a victory of reason over belief. Last October 25th, in a speech to the Trilateral Committee in Bonn, Germany, entitled, American policy and global change, Brzezinski talked of a policy as foreign to America as the Nazi salute or the Kremlin's red banner of despotism. Brzezinski said, a concentrated foreign policy must give way to a complex foreign policy, no longer focused on a single dramatic task such as the defense of the West. Instead, we must engage ourselves on the distant and difficult goal of giving shape to a world that has suddenly become politically awakened and socially restless. And he continued, a wider and more cooperative world system has to include also that part of the world which is ruled by communism. One-third of mankind now lives under communist systems, and these states, Brzezinski said, have to be assimilated into a wider fabric of global cooperation. What manner of talk is this, coming from the author of America's foreign policy? Why should America, the last great bastion of freedom, crumbling though it may be, have to assimilate and be assimilated into a wider fabric of global cooperation. In the America of 50 years ago, any public official uttering such treasonous thoughts as these would at best have been preemptorily fired and at worst impeached what has happened in recent what has happened in recent decades to this once great land of the brave why have we americans allowed the foreign born kissinger tainted with his old world ideas a protege of the rockefellers and a darling of the council of foreign relations who received the Nobel Peace Prize for concocting America's ignoble Vietnam surrender to fashion Americans' foreign policy for eight tragic years? Or why do we now suffer foreign born Brzezinski, naturalized in 1958, another protege of Rockefeller, to draw us into the maelstrom of world communism? As far As the kind of officials we allow in our State Department is concerned, we should follow the patriotic course said to have been ordered by George Washington in posting the guard before a battle. Put only Americans on guard tonight. Why, I ask, should we turn over to appeasers and compromisers with communism, men like Kissinger and Brzezinski, whose commitment to the high ideals of America's founding fathers is as cavalier as the wilds of an alley cat, the direction of the sacred homeland of Washington, Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt? Are we so bereft of modern-day statesmen that we cannot find patriotic and courageous men like John Hay or Charles Evans Hughes to fashion an America-first foreign policy. We tolerate, at our own peril, men in public office, such as Kissinger, Brzezinski, and Andrew Young, co conspirators conspirators in the establishment of one world government. Carter's foreign policy is based on accommodation with communism. It would homogenize the freedom precepts of our founding fathers with the tyranny of the Soviets and the inhumanity of red China to produce the horror show of one world government. Carter would lead us beside the communist path to national suicide. He he would restore to us the likes of Kissinger and Rockefeller. Surely, in succumbing to Carter's leadership, he will lead us into the shadows of the Kremlin forever. Remember, it was the internal causes that were the unseen protagonists in the fall of Rome. Abraham Lincoln, as a young man, and before America was 50 years of age, warned that if this nation was to perish, it would be by suicide. In a Springfield Lyceum Address in 1838, he said, all the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa with all the treasure of the earth, our own excepted in its military chest, and with Bonaparte as a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. If destruction is to be our lot, then we ourselves must be its author or finisher. As a nation of free men, We must live through all time or die by suicide. Several years ago, Anthony Sutton wrote an excellent book in which, by chapter and verse, he pointed out that America was committing national suicide by providing military aid to the Soviet Union. Sutton dedicated his book to the 35 million individuals killed by Soviet statism between 1917 and 1972. Incidentally, this figure of deaths by the imperial regime of the Soviets, and you know they always call us imperial, they are the real imperialists, was placed as high as $50 by a report of the Senate Security Committee in 1970. Sutton correctly noted that all presidential administrations, from that of Woodrow Wilson to that of Richard Nixon, have followed a bipartisan foreign policy of building up the Soviet Union. This policy is censored, was then, and still is. It is a policy of national suicide. An update of this statement would have to include Presidents Ford and Carter. It must be obvious to all who love America that what this country needs, if we are to survive, is a president with such courage and such patriotism that he would abandon forthwith our bifurcated foreign policy, a man who would place America first among the nations of the world, a man whose vision A man whose vision encompasses a strong, compassionate, and prosperous America. Yes, and a man of nerves of steel and with a backbone of granite who would tell the international money changers to put the defense and well-being of America first or ship out to Uganda, Tanzania. or some other god spot. Finally, a man who would get rid of the likes of Kissinger, Brzezinski, and Young, and who would offer to pay the fares of all One-Worlders to any communist nation on the globe. <laughs> Providing, of course, that they took their un-American ideas with them. General Douglas MacArthur, Who always put God and country above all else, warned the nation to whose security and advancement he had devoted his life that there could never be any compromise with communism. In his great speech before the Congress, MacArthur said, the communist threat is a global one. You cannot appease or otherwise surrender to communism in Asia without simultaneously undermining our efforts to halt its advance in Europe. Nor would George Washington ever have been taken in by the current mode of bipartisanism bunk, or ever clutched to his bosom the viperous doctrine of one-worldism. Washington, for example, importuned his fellow countrymen. He said, against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, I conjure you to believe me, fellow citizens. The jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government. President Carter has made human rights the keystone of his convoluted foreign policy. In answer to a question I posed to Secretary of State Cyrus Vance last Monday at the National Governors' Conference, the Secretary indicated that human rights was one of the major goals of the Carter administration. Never has any administration fed such hypocritical hogwash to the American public as the sanctimonious pontifications of President Carter on human rights. and then proceeded to backstep with such alacrity into the world camps of despotism. For example, in his inaugural address last year and two months later in a talk before that dollar-sucking Marxist conspiratorial organization euphemistically called the United Nations, The president boldly proclaimed his human rights doctrine for Brzezinski's new assimilated world of cooperation. Although Secretary Vance still believes that human rights is a cornerstone to the president's foreign policy, no communist nation believes in it, practices it, or cares a hoot about it. Not in Belgrade, Moscow, Havana, or Panama City. Thus, the Carter human rights doctrine has only succeeded as an exportable product for those nations on which the administration wishes to impose its will, such as Rhodesia and South Africa. How fraudulent and devoid of honesty the entire policy becomes if we consider three important world areas in which the administration hopes to change our foreign policy by a higher tolerance for communism. I refer to the Far East, to South Africa, and to the Caribbean area. Carter, following in the steps of Ford, Nixon, and other presidential administrations, beholden to the international bankers multinational corporations, and one-worlders would normalize relations with red China, throw South Korea to the red jackals of the North, and destroy the Eastern Pacific defense barrier put together by our leading military strategists of 25 years ago. What then happens to South Korea if we pull our troops out of that country? The void we create will surely be filled by North Korea. Both Japan and the Philippines will inevitably fall under severe communist pressure from within and from abroad. And if Carter normalizes relations with red China, as his administration is determined to do, it would mean abrogating our 1954 mutual defense treaty with our ancient, honorable, and faithful ally, the Republic of China. Incidentally, <laughs> incidentally, the red Chinese dragon of the mainland would have the greatest affliction of stomach cramps in its 50-year history if it tried to swallow the highly motivated and strongly defended Republic of China. The rock military force of 2.3 million in active duty and reserve status is one of the best equipped and trained fighting forces in the world today. They are now making much of their own war materials and may well have perfected nuclear warheads. Behind this force is a booming econo- economy where 17 million Taiwanese outproduce every year the gross national product of 800 million mainland Chinese living under the stifling conditions of communism. <clears throat> if the president, against the will of the American people, is able to impose his foreign policy initiatives on the Far East, the only defense we will have for Hawaii and our Pacific coast against communist intrusion will be such tenuous Pacific islands as the Marianas and Wake. In South Africa we would not merely be snuggling into a bamboo communist bed, as we would if we normalized relations with red China, we would jeopardize our very survival. The Carter foreign policy for the Horn of South Africa calls for open and practical support of communist forces operating in Rhodesia and southwest Africa. The current foreign aid bill earmarks $100 million, which the State Department can and will use in various ways to support the terrorist forces of Robert Mugabe and Joshua Nekoma, known as the Patriotic Front, that operates out of Mozambique in Rhodesia, and the murdering, abducting terrorists in Ovamba, Southwest Africa, known as Southwest Africa People's Organization, or SWAPO. South Africa, with 4% of the land and 7% of the population of the continent of Africa, produces 50% of the gross national product of the continent, 50% of the electricity, and 25% of the food. It is one of only six exporters of food in the world. It is blessed with mineral wealth, which includes 75% of the gold in the free world, 85% of the free world's diamonds, 45% of the free world's uranium, the world's largest deposits of vanadium, low-grade chromium, and antimony, minerals of vital strategic value in time of war and coal deposits among the world's largest. Its strategic land position makes South Africa the practical guardian of one of the four principal sea routes of the world. Around its horn pass 70% of the oil supplies of the West and 40% of the foodstuff. If South Africa falls to communism, either Russia Red China, or some puppet of either, the United States could not survive a major war effort for more than 90 days. Fortunately, South Africa is protected by the second strongest military force on the continent. Only a major force like Russia, in a direct confrontation, could take South Africa from its strongly determined citizens and then only when there were none left to fight. Finally, the giveaway of our American Canal in Panama reveals the deep commitment of the Carter administration to bring freedom to an end in the United States by accommodation with communism. President Kennedy gutted the Monroe Doctrine when he, through evil purpose, or by miserable cowardice, pulled out of the Bay of Pigs' commitment and thereby placed the stamp of approval on Castro's murderous and inhuman regime. The Caribbean is fast becoming a Red Sea. Jamaica is now Marxist, a bankrupt despotism which U.N. Ambassador Young is trying to shore up with millions of your tax dollars and mine. The Marxist dictatorship of Omar Torrijos has not tolerated human rights since it marched to power by torture and bloodshed 10 years ago. President Carter has done and is doing everything possible to give away the canal, despite the ominous warnings of four courageous former chiefs of Naval Operations, Admirals Mora, Burke, Anderson, and Carney. They said loss of the Panama Canal, which would be a serious setback in war, would contribute to the encirclement of the United States by hostile naval forces and threaten our ability to survive. Almost 400 other patriotic and honest admirals and generals agree with that sentiment. So, too, do 72% of the American public, according to a recent poll of American Research Opinion. And yet, senator after senator is saying that despite the overwhelming opposition of his constituency, he will vote to ratify a treaty that will deprive us of a canal desperately needed for America's very survival. Friends, the canal issue is the last chance, I believe, that we Americans shall have to preserve our liberty short of catastrophic war. Even if senators, forgetting the lesson of Washington at Valley Forge and callously ignoring their responsibility to their people, should ratify these infamous treaties, we must not cease our efforts. The issue... The issue of the canal must be taken to the polls this November. Every senator... Every senator up for re-election who fails to vote against the treaties must be swept from office as though he were a Benedict Arnold. and I must not stop there. We must mount the greatest electoral revolution in the history of our nation by sending only Americans to Congress, to the state houses, and to the legislatures. Yes, and on that great tide of public resentment, We shall ride the crest of the storm until Carter and all of his one-worlders and international bankers are driven from office in 1980. Then, for the first time in decades, shall we walk again humbly before God, proud of our great heritage, and grateful that we can pass on to our children our precious liberty, purified by the sacrifice and blood of all American patriots. Friends, do not despair. Keep the faith. Bear in mind. There were only 300 Lacedaemonians, or Greeks, who stemmed the great tide of two and a half million of Xerxes' forces. Remember the story of Gideon in the Bible and how the Lord tested him. And finally, after he eliminated the last and had only 300 by the manner in which they drank at the stream. The Lord gave Gideon the victory over the hosts of Midianites. Remember, too, if you will, that this great country of ours was put to the test at Valley Forge, where George Washington prayed for guidance and strength. 12,000 went into Valley Forge, 2,000 died that cold and bitter winter, 2,000 deserted. And only 8,000 in 13 colonies numbering 4 million was a tiny force that kept the faith for personal liberty and finally set this great nation on its course. We have no alternative but to win. And with God's help, we shall win.